in Georgetown, Texas, which is located in the hill country and at the headwaters of the San Gabriel River, four employees of TNT crane and rigging were engaged in the process of disassembling a crane and loading its segments onto a flatbed truck. This was at the finish of a job where the crane was now no longer in use. As the crane operator swung the crane boom towards the flatbed, the load line held by a spotter swung into an overhead power line carrying 14,000 volts. The spotter was electrocuted, suffered severe burns and other serious injuries, and was sent to the hospital. When OSHA issued a citation, TNT crane and rigging contested the citation, arguing that the error was the result of unpreventable supervisorial error. We'll discuss the Review Commission's decision in this case on this, the July 20, 2022 episode of the OSHA 3030. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030. I'm Manish Rath. I'm a partner at the law firm Keller and Heckman here in Washington, D.C. Uh, I've been doing this area, I've been practicing in this area of law for over 26 years, representing management side in matters involving occupational safety and health law. I'm lucky because today I've been joined by my dear friend and my colleague here at Keller and Heckman, Taylor Johnson, who is an attorney focused in environmental law, as well as occupational safety and health law. Taylor, welcome to the OSHA 3030. Pleasure to be here, Manish, as always. Yeah, it's my pleasure as well to have you here. And we've got a great topic, as you know. This case is the one involving TNT rigging, an unusual case because it went up from the administrative law judge to the review commission, back down to the administrative law judge, and then back up to the review commission, which is where we are today. Exactly. And like you said, it's a great case. Um, so first, what we're going to do is discuss the events that led uh, to the incident. Uh, next, we'll go through the background of OSHA's uh, investigation and then subsequent citation. Uh, then, and as you mentioned, there were two administrative law judge and review commissions in this case. Uh, we'll cover the second ALJ decision as well as the second review commission decision. And then we'll wrap it up with some practical takeaway action items, uh, as we always do, for you to bring back to your workplace. And then, as you know, Taylor, We've, uh, for the past year or two, we've included another section after the recordings have been turned off. We're recording this for the purpose of rebroadcasting it. This is a live webinar on July 20th, 2022, but we'll record it and rebroadcast it as a podcast, as well as post it on YouTube and on our website, khlaw.com. But we'll go off the record just for our live audience today to submit any questions. We've had one question pre-submitted, we, we invite people on Monday of the week of the program to pre-submit any questions. And if they're black letter law questions, then this is a, a special opportunity to talk about whatever's on your mind uh, relating to OSHA law in a um, off the record segment for live participants only. So with that said, uh, here we go. As we mentioned before, TNT crane and rigging was hired to replace uh, antennae on a communication tower in Georgetown, Texas. This is just north of Austin, Texas, on the banks of the San Gabriel River. And this was uh, a project that occurred in May 2016. 
and a an employee of TNT crane and rigging unfortunately suffered serious injuries while taking apart that crane. And Manish, the specific incident that occurred was that as the crane operator lowered the boom, uh, the Beckett, which is a metal connector used to keep uh, the load line taut during the boom's descent, uh, this hit a power line, uh, causing the operator to be electrocuted with 14,000 volts of electricity. Uh, the employee was then hospitalized and uh, ended up with severe burns and, and serious injuries. Yeah, it's an unfortunate story. OSHA came around and conducted an investigation. The OSHA inspector uh, was named Darren Beck and he was uh, assigned the investigation in this matter. When Mr. Beck arrived on site, he was unable to uh, enter the locked work site. Uh, so he went to the location of the, uh, of the uh, accident and uh, took a look around there. He went to the TNT offices and interviewed witnesses and then inspected the stored crane, which was in storage at the time. Uh, I think that's interesting, of course, when you when you look at these super tall communication towers, they are locked off. And so inspecting the location, he couldn't get past the gates to do any, any closer inspection. But of course, by that time, TNT had long gone. That's right, Manish. And based on his investigation, uh, CSHO Beck concluded that TNT failed to comply with two regulatory requirements uh, for crane disassembly. Uh, the first is that additional measures were not in place to prevent encroachment of the power lines. And then the second was that the, the actual disassembly um, that occurred in an area that was closer than the minimum approach distance that's required by the regulations, which in this case, uh, there was a 20-foot a, a buffer zone that was prescribed. So when they issued these two citations, it's interesting that the inspector issued these two citation items and TNT crane and rigging contested the citations. Because I, and I, th I think that's interesting because the facts in this case uh, presented very little daylight for for an employer to present a defense, but they they issued uh, a citation contest, and then they were off to a, a essentially a pretrial and then a hearing. Uh, the two sections, as you mentioned, Taylor, of the of the crane standard of, uh, in the construction seg section, by the way, 1926, not section 1910, were that, uh, as you mentioned, that they, the employer failed to take additional measures to prevent encroachment of the boom into power lines, and that there should always be a minimum clearance between all parts of the crane and any power lines. So they issued a citation on those two items uh, with a total penalty amount of $24,000. This is a subcontractor. And so believing at the time, as TNT did, that they did not violate the standard, they they believed that the citation itself would have had a deleterious effect on their business operations going forward. I don't believe that the penalty amount was really what was at stake for TNT, uh, as much as the importance of uh, asserting that their, their practices were compliant and safe. I should say as background that, the, as, as we mentioned earlier, this matter went before an administrative law judge in Houston, Texas. That judge vacated the citations on the basis that, the, that he asserted that the standard did not apply. TNT had argued that the standard shouldn't apply because the accident happened during preliminary steps that were pre preparatory for the task of disassembling the crane. And as such, the standard didn't apply. The LJ agreed and vacated the citations. Uh, 
OSHA brought this matter uh, up to the review commission. The review commission disagreed with the judge, agreed with OSHA, and said, no, no, the standard applies. So please send this back down before an administrative law judge to reevaluate the case on the remaining open issues. The parties didn't uh, conduct a new, new trial. They, they argued the remaining issues before another administrative law judge. Uh, Taylor, this one was in Denver. That's right. And so it goes back to that um, administrative law judge in October of 2020. And here OSHA argues that knowledge uh, should be imputed to the employer uh, because Supervisor Benson, who was a supervisor on site at the time, uh, was acting, actually, he was a crane operator. OSHA argues that he was acting as a supervisor in a supervisory role and that he knew or should have known that uh, he did not follow guidelines for crane disassembly. Well, that's interesting too. Uh, TNT had argued that the crane operator was not a supervisor and also argued that to the extent that he was a supervisor, his role constituted unpreventable supervisorial misconduct. The crane operator himself in testimony stated that he did view himself as the supervisor for that crew. So to be clear, there's a four-man crew on site uh, one operated the crane, another operated the flatbed truck upon which the crane operator's boom was to be lowered and then disassembled. Then there were two spotters. One spotter was aiding in the movement of the crane boom, and the other spotter aided the operator of the flatbed truck in moving through the worksite. So the operator of the crane was the individual who asserted that he viewed himself as the supervisor of the crew. And on that basis, TNT argued he wasn't a supervisor, but to the extent he was, his role would have constituted unpreventable supervisorial misconduct. He knew how to do this the right way, and he, he failed to, to conform with corporate practice, good practices. Exactly. And then on remand, uh, ALJ Duncan again vacates both citations. This, this time, is the administrative law judge in Denver, the second. Exactly. Right. And, it's, and this time it's on the, on the grounds that OSHA failed to prove employer knowledge, not that the standard didn't apply. So again, vacating, but again, uh, you know, shifts this time to employer knowledge. Employer knowledge we've covered on a number of recent OSHA 3030 episodes. And I think this is an important question, both for the four prima facie elements that OSHA has to establish in its burden of proof, but it also comes up in the affirmative defense of supervisorial employee misconduct. It's, it's unpreventable misconduct if the employer had no knowledge of the misconduct or took reasonable actions to try and discover uh, any violations and simply couldn't have done so in time in this particular case. But let's first talk about the first four, the four prima facie elements that OSHA has to establish. Uh, the first is that the standard applies. And Taylor, as we discussed, that was already addressed by the first administrative law judge and then remanded by the review commission. They said unequivocally, the standard does apply. The next element is that the employer did not comply with the standard. And that really is what's at stake here, an examination of the requirements under the uh, crane standard and then whether or not TNT complied with those requirements. 
Exactly. And the third condition is that the employees had access to the violative condition, uh, you know, not really at issue in this case. And then the fourth, um, sort of, you know, the the hinge point of the second, um, you know, review commission decision and, and ALJ decision is that the employer had actual or constructive knowledge of the violation. And, and this means that you know, either the employer actually knew or through the exercise of a reasonable amount of diligence could have discovered the allegedly violative condition. And it's that last quality, the exercise of reasonable diligence that overlaps with elements that TNT would have to establish in raising the unpreventable supervisorial misconduct defense. So, so that defense uh, TNT did raise, and they, uh, the elements in establishing a defense like that are first that the employer had work rules in place that they were designed to prevent the violation, that those work rules would have complied with the standard and would have uh, eliminated the hazard. And second, that the employer adequately informed the employees of the work rules. Right, through a training program and record keeping that demonstrated that those employees were trained up and understood the training. And the third would be that the employer had a demonstrable record that it took steps to discover violations. This is active, frequent monitoring, walkthroughs, inspections, et cetera. Right. And then that the employer effectively enforced those rules when violations were detected. So those are the four elements that an employer would have to prove in its affirmative defense. Here, it's a little trickier because in TNT's case, it was a supervisor whom they are alleging engaged in unpreventable misconduct. To establish that is a little uh, bit uh, unique compared to all the other cases involving supervisorial misconduct because there were four people performing this task at once in concert. But TNT would have had to establish that the employee was acting in a supervisorial role at the time of the accident and that the supervisor had actual or constructive knowledge of the misconduct, maybe of, of one of his crew members, for example. Right. And then finally, that the supervisor's misconduct uh, was foreseeable. And foreseeability, of course, can be proven if an employer, you know, if there's a deficiency in training and enforcement of work rules, then you know, uh, foreseeability can, can be imputed here. So that's certainly an issue in the case. And Taylor, as I just said, this is trickier because now you have a case where the whole crew was acting to perform a task in concert. And the Review Commission said that the question of knowledge uh, is going to be analyzed differently because there's an entire crew. Here in this case, the Review Commission said the TNT did have knowledge of the practice that the crew was engaged in because there was a supervisor on site and the actions were taken by the entire crew and not just by the supervisor. So it's not his misconduct that led to the accident in question, the Review Commission asserted but the actions of the entire, or the misconduct of the entire crew. Exactly. And, and the review commission ends up finding that, you know, Supervisor Benson here, he did have knowledge of other crew members' conduct. Uh, he was right there on site. And then that knowledge is then imputed to TNT without a showing of foreseeability. Uh, the commission specifically said that when a supervisor engages in misconduct alongside a subordinate or authorizes a subordinate to engage in misconduct, both of those scenarios involve a, support, a subordinate's violation of safety rules. And so it's reasonable then to charge the employer with a supervisor's knowledge of the subordinate's misconduct. Yeah, that's right, Taylor. And the review commission specifically pointed to the fact that at the very beginning of that shift, the entire crew of four met 
and conducted a job safety analysis and discussed how they were going to perform this task in a manner that they thought was safe and compliant. So it wasn't just a question of super unpreventable supervisorial misconduct. It was the misconduct of employees to which the supervisor should have been uh, able to, to observe, foresee, supervise, and correct. Okay, so the second review commission doesn't like the unpreventable supervisorial misconduct argument on that basis, and then continues to analyze the question of employer knowledge on the other elements, Taylor, that we were just talking about. For example, not just the training, but the monitoring and enforcement elements of, of uh, establishing employer knowledge. Right. They Specifically, they found that TNT did not have sufficient work rules uh, to prevent the type of accident uh, that occurred in this case. Um, they found that you know, the, the reliance on an employer's general plan or intent to maintain 20 feet of distance without an affirmative or specific measure in place before starting disassembly um, was, was not going to, to, you know, to, to pass muster in this case. Specifically, what TNT did was they actually um, they took the section uh, of the OSHA standard at issue here and put it in their work rules, um, but they did not specify how the employees on the ground should, uh, you know, should meet that standard. Yeah, and Taylor, in the hearing, there was also discussion. They, they put on executives from TNT and asked them, how frequently do you send people up to Georgetown to conduct monitoring and uh, evaluation of how the tasks are being performed? And he said, we, we do send people out there to audit the, the practices of the remote crews. Uh, it's not a periodic or scheduled interval, but it happens. And when asked, well, how often does it happen? He said, well, I couldn't tell you how often it happens, but these audits do take place. We do send people out there. I thought, Taylor, you may have agreed that it, was, it, it stuck out that the Review Commission, in its opinion, noted that uh, they found it to be troubling, they said. None of TNT's uh, safety professionals claimed to visit the work site to inspect, uh, to verify that the crew was working safely. And that's, that's interesting, particularly given that TNT is asserting that neither the crane operator nor any of the on-site employees served as the supervisor, according to, to TNT, notwithstanding that, that Benson, the crane operator, did believe he was supervisor of the crew but that they singled out safety professionals and said that we find it troubling that none of TNT's safety professionals had visited the Georgetown worksite was to me of particular interest, particularly when we get into our last discussion, Taylor, as to what employers should do. It's, it's not hard to see at least one opportunity for employers when reading this case, which we'll get into shortly. Okay, well, why don't we talk about some of the other things that employers should do. I, I'd say the first, it goes back to the very beginning of the day, that fateful day where the employee was injured. It started with the employees meeting and talking about job hazards and what their job specific plan of action was going to be for dismantling that crane and loading it onto the flatbed truck. I'd say the takeaway item for all employers, not just when discussing crane safety, would be to conduct a job specific safety plan at the beginning of the day and not to just rely on safety corporate wide safety policies uh, because each task and particularly complex tasks like this presents a unique set of hazards that need to be challenged or abated or uh, intercepted in unique ways perhaps. Couldn't agree more. And 
And second, you know, the inspectors' interviews are, are crucial. This is something that we've seen come up in a lot of the you know recent cases that we've been covering here. Um, Manish is that you know the uh, CSHO you know not on site when the accident occurs, um, you know, is able to build a case through interviews, you know, of employees. And so training your field staff on how to prepare uh, for these inspections, how to prepare for these interviews, is certainly something that we recommend. Well, Taylor, that's right. I think you're 100 right. The in this particular case, he couldn't even get access to the accident site. Right. He went to TNT's offices and he conducted interviews. And it was solely on the basis of his interviews of TNT employees that he was able to bring his case. And I think he did a very effective job. The Compliance Safety and Health Officer Ferocia did a very effective job of doing this. TNT's employees who were interviewed have to be able to respond in a manner that is truthful and give answers that are cooperative with the agency when it's conducting its investigation. However, TNT should train its employees not to give responses that are speculative, for example, that are overgeneralized, for example, and of course, that are in conflict with other employees, thereby indicating that at least one of them may have been inaccurate. For example, who the supervisor was on this crew was an instance of conflicting testimony. So there's a lot that an employer can do with its field personnel to train them as to how to handle enforcement agency investigations or inspections in order that the truth is preserved, that it is described accurately and not misleadingly. And that training, I think, should be conducted in the context of bringing an attorney on board who, who handles OSHA citations uh, and to, to make sure that eventually the entirety of your staff receives that kind of training. The other thing I'd say, Taylor, as to what employers should do in light of this case, well, supervision for safety intensive tasks is something that we see happen to be discussed by review commissions and administrative law judges in a lot of the cases in the OSHA 3030. Uh, who conducts the supervision, how frequently they're conducting the supervision or monitoring, and uh, whether or not those safety and health intensive tasks are being overseen by safety professionals in particular uh, are all elements that employers can look to this case and, and consider whether or not they can improve in their own work sites and in their own uh, projects that are offsite. Um, our fourth takeaway here is, is specific uh, to um, employers who are, you know, have employees who are disassembling cranes, but we did want to, you know, pull these out. Um, these are discussed in the case, but also found in the standard themselves. And these are some of these preventative measures uh, that employers can take um, while, you know, disassembling a crane to prevent the type of accident that occurred here in this case. And so these include uh, automatic spotting functions um, by utilizing proximity alarms, uh, range control warning devices, uh, devices that automatically limit range of movement or an elevated warning line. Yeah, that's right. And Taylor, I think that this is also applicable to anytime you have moving vehicles, powered industrial trucks, et cetera, oh, right. uh, at the work site, along with uh, pedestrian work uh, workers or employees, uh, that opportunity for uh, automating in addition to monitors. We're not advocating that this be a substitute for monitors, but to automate a supplemental uh, layer of protection on top of the human monitors who come with 
a lot more human judgment, but also with the human factors uh, that are prone to error. Uh, that, that I think is a reasonable uh, measure to investigate whether or not it can be effectively implemented and it would, whether it would have a, a beneficial effect on, on reducing the kind of collisions that take place when you have a lot of moving parts on site. Uh, then, as we discussed before, not just through safety professionals, but through supervisorial uh, or managerial functions to conduct frequent uh, audit audits of the work sites to make sure that the practices that are actually being implemented conform to corporate safety practices and to the, the applicable standards. Uh, those, those frequent monitoring audits or walkthroughs or inspections, uh, I think, are a critical part of every safety program. That's right. And along with frequent monitoring, um, of course, you know, training and then adequate records of those training um, is certainly something that is another takeaway that we, we had here from this case. Taylor, that's today's OSHA 3030. I thought it was a great topic. I think it was an important topic because it goes back to the same subject that we keep talking about, which is unpreventable employee misconduct, unpreventable supervisorial misconduct, and the question of employer knowledge of various safety practices or malpractices. This program will be saved shortly on our website at khlaw.com slash OSHA3030. So check it out. Eight years worth of other really valuable, instructive episodes of the OSHA 3030 are also housed at that same location. We'll rebroadcast this program as well as a podcast on uh, your favorite podcast uh, broadcasting app. We both have an account on LinkedIn. So if you haven't linked in with us, please take a couple of minutes and link in with Manish Rath and Taylor Johnson and with the Keller and Heckman Workplace Safety and Health page as well to make sure that we are able to remain in touch. As well, we'll rebroadcast this program on YouTube and house that on our website, khlaw.com. Please join us again next month for our next episode at 1 p.m. Eastern time on August 17th, always on a Wednesday, always at 1 p.m. Eastern. So the next one's August 17th. I guess that makes it a slightly short uh, interval. So we'll look forward to seeing you then. We'll send out invitations for it. And when you get that invitation, please, all we ask in exchange for the valuable content that we provide in this program is that when you get your invitation, please continue to forward it each time to three new colleagues within your organization, in-house counsel or safety and health professionals, or colleagues at other organizations, competitors, uh, or vendors, or suppliers, uh, or customers who have safety and health professionals or in-house counsel. And if your organization is responsible for compliance with TOSCA or REACH, feel free to join us on our sister programs, the TOSCA 3030 and the REACH 3030. The next ones will be on August 10th. Taylor, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. I'd like to thank the staff at Keller and Heckman who have helped us put this program on today. A lot of people behind the scenes who make this program a success. And finally, I'd like to thank everyone who is attending today on the live program or listening later on as a podcast. Thank you all for participating. We look forward to seeing you again next month. Stick around for those of you who are live uh, for the off the record section, and we'll look forward to seeing the rest of you on August 17th. And until then, stay safe. <laughs>